90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Yeah. It's been a... We don't have anything to talk about because, like, no major weather events have happened. So, you know, our our general front porch talk about the weather is non-existent this week. It's true. Uh, I am getting to do, which is kind of rare, I've had a little bit of time to do some product development. Mm. So we're actually going to have three new products launching pretty soon. Oh, that's exciting. And a couple of them are really interesting i think for geology the one that i am probably the most excited one of them is of course it's batteries in a box it's (sighs) geophysics oh of course (laughs) geophysics is batteries these are just batteries done better (laughs) Uh, one is meteorology related mostly but one is a field case to put a gopro in and Eric says, well, that's not new. Like People mm-hmm. put GoPros out all the time. This is a box that has a solar panel mounted on top. It will power your GoPro indefinitely in <gasps> time-lapse mode. In time-lapse mode. So you can take <gasps> an image an hour forever. Wow. And it has a uh, a battery pack inside. So when you're if you do have a problem with the solar system or there's a lot of cloudy days, <laughs> like, it'll run for like three weeks on just the battery. Oh my gosh. You don't mean like the solar system, like Mercury's in retrograde? Right, no. Uh, <laughs> and we have been developing an accessory for it, which I'm pretty excited about. It's kind of hard to test. And I've been able to do some testing in the thermal chamber but I'm waiting for like the perfect set of mornings to do it here. But it is a temperature-controlled lens anti-icing system oh. that runs on the solar panel. So you can set it to like if you're only taking time-lapse photos during the day, you can set it to at sunup start defrosting the lens and maintain the lens slightly above freezing all day. Oh, that's awesome. Not that we have to worry about that here because it was 72 degrees today. Yeah, <laughs> unlike a couple weeks ago where it was like minus 10. Yes, exactly. That is so um, cool. But yeah, a very early, I don't even want to say an early version of it. What, what's inspired it is one of our customers took one of our tilt meter power boxes and hacksawed a hole in it and glued a piece of plexiglass over it <laughs> and put a GoPro in it. Uh-huh. And said, hey, this works really nice, but I would like you to make one that doesn't look like I hacksawed a hole in it. <laughs> and it okay. has evolved into this system. And I think in the future, we'll probably even be able to do telemetry. Ooh. So if you want to have your time-lapse photos returned to you, nice. we could do that. That's nice. Now, it sounds like all you need to do is put some legs on it, and now you're in, you know... Lunar Martian rover territory. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's been exciting. I obviously see uses. We have a, a large glacial community that we serve mm-hmm. in in that realm. 
but another place that you use time lapse a lot is when you're looking at volcanoes. That is absolutely true. Like, you know, the time that elapsed while I went to Hawaii and the volcano turned off and turned back on as soon as I left. <laughs> we have that power, don't we? Oh, it did the same thing for me. That's exactly right. Oh, my goodness. Um, what a beautiful way to intro our volcanic sedimentary rock show. Yeah, and that's about the last thing I have to say about this. <laughs> Well, you should say, you can't say volcanic sedimentary rock. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. If I learned anything in sedimentology, it was that it's all everything always. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so as is the norm, I was inspired by being in the lab and looking at you know, all the thin sections that we're going to use in our sedimentary petrology lab. And I thought, man, I know there's not very many volcanic rock thin sections that we have, or even actual volcanic rock sedimentary rocks, but surely there used to be a lot of them. And so I went to my book because, I mean, I read the textbook when I was in the class, but not religiously. And I've touched this textbook more in the last three years than I did in the 20s. What book are you using? So um, there's actually not a ton of new ones. And this is not one that a lot of people use. I like the Prothero and Schwab Sedimentary Geology book. I have not used that one ever. No, uh, you probably use Boggs if you had a yeah, book. Yeah, I use Boggs. Yeah, mm -hmm. lots of people use Boggs. I like this book way better. The problem is... There hasn't been a new edition in a while, and all the pictures are not fantastic. But, man, I love the font. <laughs> I just love the font. <laughs> this is why we're friends. Exactly. <laughs> Before the show, we were discussing um, Instagram, and that was an Instagram I was going to send you, was this entire play where this woman is different fonts talking to each other. And at one point, she has a coffee cup that says, like, kerning or bust or something on it. And I was like, I have precisely <laughs> one friend who will think this is as amazing as I do. <laughs> and that is me. Exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> I digress. Um, so pleasantly, I read this <laughs> whole part on non-epiclastic sedimentary rocks. Okay. So what's so... non-epiclastic? <laughs> Yeah, let's start breaking it down, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So sedimentary rocks, if you go back to remember your classification schemes, right? Um, you're classifying classic sedimentary rocks based on what three components? Ooh. <gasps> this, is, this is tough. John, we've done a show about this. <laughs> we have, but it's been a while. <laughs> so... Uh, so it's the Let's triangle. See, it's a triangle. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's angularity. There's size. No, 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 no. All composition. Just talking about composition. Oh, oh, on composition. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. It's times like these that I realize what a geophysicist you are. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, I mean, let's see. If, if I were trying to, to pull stuff out of thin the, air, which The I folk am. triangle. So there's got to be some quartz on there. That's the top. Okay, so there's got to be quartz. There's mm -hmm. got to be spar. 
That's the one vertice, mm -hmm. the the left vertice as you look at it. And calcite? <gasps> Calcite's part of it. So the other vertice, it depends on where you're taking this, is either L or R. So it stands for rock fragments or lithics. Okay. And so those pieces, oh, okay. so remember? The other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the, the part of the triangle where all the pieces are pieces of other rocks. Right. Okay. Yeah. So now these words might be familiar to you. So, uh, so you could have set aronites. So a type uh, of rock mm -hmm, that are made of other said rocks. Uh, you know, litharonite's the big word for all of them. So you can have set aronites or volcanic aronites made of volcanics, right? Or metamorphic aronites, and then you can get into a whole bunch of other different stuff there too. But I thought it was interesting to think about that little volcanic aronite section. And it turns out in this Prothero and Traub book, there's a whole section on them. And we've talked a bit about some of these things on the show before, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about these volcanogenic sedimentary rocks. The epiclastic sedimentary rocks are the ones that are made of other sedimentary rocks. Okay. So pieces of other said stuff. So now we're talking about sedimentary rocks that are made of pieces of volcanic origin instead. So this, to me, sounds more like it belongs in an IGMET book. So I did find, actually, a really great um, part in my IGMET book about this. <laughs> it was very well written. Well written. Um, and I love, like, in the IGMET book, I love this so much. So did, you took IGMET, didn't you? I did not. You did not. Okay. I knew you didn't have to. I didn't know if you actually wound up doing it. So, Are you kidding? I think I took like E&M or something. <laughs> <laughs> something uh, with math. That's right. Something with math. <clears throat> that's right. Your double major is much easier than mine. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was more overlap between geophysics and meteorology. It's yeah. just all physics and math. It's just all physics and math. So igneous classification schemes, like geophysics is all batteries, is all triangles. There's <laughs> so many <laughs> triangles, right? And so, of course, they've made a triangle out of classifying these volcanogenic sedimentary rocks. So do they put all these triangles together and get, like, the power of the pyramid classification uh, scheme? A hundred percent, right? It has to be some Zelda stuff happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is certainly the Triforce. Um, <laughs> but you know what came of me reading all this stuff in, like, the sedimentary rock book? So the sedimentary rock book calls it the non-epiclastic sedimentary rock section. Hilarious, right? Not sedimentary sedimentary rocks. In the igneous right. book, they're called pyroclastic rocks. And I thought, I have never realized the word clast in pyroclastic. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. It's so funny how, like, central, you know, non-epiclastic versus pyroclastic. But, yeah, so clasts. That's exactly it. Clasts made of fire. What are the fire rocks? They're the volcanic stuff. And volcanoes are really good at making little bitty pieces so, and not so little bitty pieces. So many rock. fire rocks. And so that's what the triangle is, um, is exactly that. So all these pyroclasts, which is nuts to me in the 10 years I've had my PhD, that that didn't ever click. 
Right? Pyroclastic, sure. But that didn't click for you. The sedimentary classification scheme bounced off me <laughs> untold numbers of times. Yeah, we're having another show about it now. <laughs> yep. It's uh, just because you get a PhD in geology doesn't mean nope. you know all of geology. It means you know probably less than most people. <laughs> right. Except for that one tiny little thing that you know a whole I'd lot I'd love about. to give a bunch of PhDs a rocks for jocks final. Oh, yeah. Like a general geology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think it would potentially be hilarious. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. Oh, man. Um, okay, so back to these pyroclasts and this triangle. <laughs> but you're exactly right. Volcanoes make lots of different things. And the whole point of these pyroclasts, right, these types of fragmented material that come out of a volcano, that's how we categorize them. We don't do it by composition, which I kind of find interesting because I feel like most igneous classification stuff is by composition. But instead of that, it's by size, which is a much more sedimentary thing to do. Size and shape. Right. And <laughs> I, I love when it's like, you know, Boulder is anything from a small car to house size, right? I know. I just taught that in lab last week. And I was like, how big do you guys think boulders are? You know, house, car, whatever. And I'm like, it's actually like this big. Like it's like a textbook. Right. <laughs> That's a boulder. So anything <laughs> bigger than 64 millimeters is considered a volcanic bomb. Yes. Or a block. It depends on the shape. Although I will tell you, I don't frequently hear people say the word block. I don't it's, think I've ever heard that. Yeah, and I think, okay, so bombs are exactly what they sound like, right? <laughs> because they're... And we got pulled from iTunes. <laughs> um. Well, so when I went to Hawaii, I was asking my friend what his wife was doing, because she's a geologist too, and she was a bomb spotter. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> and I said, what so, does that mean? literally standing next to the geologist who's working, looking down at the rocks and is looking up. So if anything big enough to hurt you flies out of the volcano, she can spot it and have them move if they have to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Unbelievable. So big pieces, greater than 64 millimeters in diameter, do fly out. And they get rounded when they do. Usually they're molten and they're flying through the air. And so those are the bombs. And we did have a volcanologist uh, that I know that had an instrument shed decimated by a (gasps) volcanic bomb that was about the size of a washing machine (laughs) that got lobbed out of the volcano and just happened to land on his very expensive seismometer GPS tilt back package. Gosh. Oh my gosh. And so that's. that's definitely boulder sized, right? <laughs> yeah, it was it was a very large volcanic bomb. <sighs> so if you get a bunch of those bombs and eventually you glue them together, now you've got this pyroclastic rock made up of that. And blocks are just the parts that are angular. So same size usually angular. So I imagine that these, because they're angular, are the ones that like break off and are moved like along the ground. These aren't ones that are getting shot out. 
yeah, maybe in more explosive eruptions. They oh, that's true. Yeah, you're right. So probably in in more, uh huh, yeah, more felsic eruptions. Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. But so that makes volcanic breaches or agglomerates. Right. Exactly. So agglomerate is the one that's made up of the bombs that are rounded, and the breccia is just like a sedimentary breccia, but now it's called a pyroclastic breccia if it's made out of the blocks. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. So that's the... So what if we go smaller? Yep. So that's the top vertice of the triangle is the big, the big boys. And now this next one is a ridiculous 2 to 64 millimeters. That's a big range. That's a... Yes. Yes, it is. But it's the most fun to say, right? And so this is the lapilli. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the L's are not a Y. No, they are not. It is Lapilli. That was my cat's name. R.I.P. Lapilli. <laughs> uh-huh. I was taking Igneous Petrology when I got these cats. And so one is named Lapilli and one was named Pahoehoe. <laughs> so they were Illy and Poe. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was really good. I did get an A in that class. Um, <laughs> and this is really funny to me. This is funny to no one but me, but... This is our podcast, so I will talk about it, Um, is that when I was thinking about all of these words that I knew from being an igneous petrology class, I guess I think of them more like a sedimentologist. And so I think about them in terms of process. And so I thought, oh, well, like lapilli is formed by getting blown out of a volcano and they're these little rounded chunks. They just look like cute little cotton balls that... (laughs) <laughs> can yeah cotton balls of fire no. <laughs> <laughs> that can like add up as they rain down and i think more about process instead of size but yeah that's their size and so the pyroclasts of the 2 to 64 millimeter type that are usually pretty rounded are called lapilli if it was it's cloudy with a chance of meatballs but with rock <laughs> yes that is, that is that is how you make lapilli stone. <laughs> um, the only lapilli I've seen was like in the middle of a meteorite impact, and it wasn't from the meteorite. Well, maybe that was the question about it. So there was a question of whether it was like meteorite lapilli or uh huh, really okay. weird. But little round balls, they could be big, they could be little. They're lapilli, and you can say. Lapilli stone, which is funny because I've never heard that, but <laughs> Lapilli stone. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if we um, get even smaller. You can get even smaller, right? And as you go down that size, so less than that, you're going to be in the ash territory. And the units here made me cringe a little bit because it's a... <laughs> Imperial fraction millimeter. It's one sixteenth of a millimeter to one millimeter. I don't know why. <laughs> like why? That hurts a little bit. It doesn't hurt as bad as kilo feet, but it's close. That's really close. I thought that too. And I'm like, was this wrong? That's why I went to the Igneous book, actually. Because I was like, what? why would you do that? Um, you know what? I think maybe that might correspond to like a fee class. So on the the fee scale of grain sizes, which are all whole numbers. Right. I think that's why 
that is on there. I need to double check that. <laughs> but yeah, so this is where you get sand, or if you get smaller, you get silt and clay sized particles. Mm-hmm. But because they're from a volcano, um, and so in general, you'll hear the word tephra too. Um, tephra is the umbrella term for all these pyroclasts, essentially. Um, so the pyroclasts are the things. The tephra is any material of any size or composition that's coming out of the volcano. Um, and so when you get down here, everything's called a tuff, basically. And it's just, is it a coarse tuff, which is the range you're just talking about, or is it like a fine ash or tuff where they are less than one sixteenth of a millimeter? Right. And this is where you get some really cool things like trees that are downed during the pyroclastic flows and then buried in this ash mm -hmm. and then the tree decomposes and you get all these cool uh, trace fossils. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and because it's so small, it essentially just snuffs out everything. And in some cases, I think we have, we talked about Florissant on here, maybe. So Florissant is a national park, um, national monument in Colorado, which is a, lake that was right next to it was dammed up because of a pyroclastic flow the lake filled up but there was still tough raining out of the sky and so these ash layers just trapped every imaginable living thing in it and because it's ash it's very finely laminated and you can just sit there and pry it apart with like a butter knife and you can find so many little fossilized bugs and leaves and all these things that are perfectly preserved in this ash tuff. Yeah, and while I'm not much of a fossil person, it is pretty cool <laughs> when you go somewhere like that where there's such a good concentration. Yes, and it's really fun. Um, just last year, every every field camp we go and I pay for the students to uh, get to go hunt on private land for these things. Um, and this last year, a guy got a spider and it was awesome. I'd never seen one before. And even the, the people obviously reserve the right to like keep the really good ones. <laughs> and right. so he shows it to me and I was like, just, just keep this to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. Was it one of your groups or was it your, I was out there. Somebody found a bee. Um, yeah. So we've gotten, not great bees, but I think that was when you were out there. Yeah, they got a really nice bee. He is a really good bee. Mm -hmm. I've gotten a bunch of really cool rose leaves. Yeah, really weird. Yeah, there's some bush that's related to the rose bush, and they look like little perfect imprints of little bitty rose leaves. So, hmm. yeah, those are that's the best thing I've probably gotten. A couple of weird little sticks. Um, got a mosquito. Just not all that oh. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> of course that would survive. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I thought. Um, but yeah, so like the ashes are where you get all these cool fossils. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, they're also things, well, ashes and larger can be involved in uh, pyroclastic flows. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, so these ashes or tufts, and I was trying to like figure out the difference between the word tuff and the word ash. And I didn't, I I think it's, the difference is that tephra versus pyroclastic. 
right? So there are, Tephra is the name of the thing that's being ejected. So like the blocks or the bombs or the lapilli or ash. But then when it becomes a rock, so when it gets lithified, so the pyroclastic sedimentary rock is the tuff. Although they did try to make it called toughite for a long time, but Oof. I don't think that ever like that never took. Yeah, no, I think I think that's the right distinction to make. To me, like tough is made of ash. Yes. Yep. Exactly. It. Mm-hmm. And it is ash. It is a. It is tephra when it is in the air. Yes. And the second that it lands on another piece of something on the ground it is no longer tephra. Yeah, it's going to start to, yes, it's going to start to become the, it is a pyroclast that's going to become a rock. Yeah. Right. So and it's s- kind of that lava versus magma. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that is exactly Distinction. Right. It's the same thing. It's just where it is in the cycle of its life. Mm-hmm. And of course, because geologists are who they are, there's a triangle for the types of tough slash ash. <laughs> Because, of course, there is, and (laughs) I'm going to assume that it has to do something with composition. Yeah, so this one is composition, right? So either you're tough, which this is the worst kind that you want to be in, is falling pieces of glass. (laughs) That would pretty thoroughly destroy anything in its path. Mm -hmm. Annihilate it. So hot molten glass needles are coming down, and so that will be the vitric tough eventually or the vitric ash. Um, And then you can just get actual crystals, which is cool. So you're exploding things, but you're getting remnants of the crystals that were under the ground. Usually they're pieces of some kind of feldspar. Um, And that gets the name crystal tough. Creative. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then you can get lithic tough. And so lithic was that one side of the triangle before remember so like pieces of rock that are in there so they're actually like chunks of volcanic stuff that was a rock that got ejected so it's probably not actually in the magma but it was ejected as part of the already lithified volcano so now it's ripped up into a piece and it's created or it's been deposited in this tuff, and so now it's a piece of that. And so that gets lithic tuff as its name. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So a little bit processed too, right? So what are you ripping up before? And I know we've talked before on the show about the different kinds of deposits in terms of like pyroclastic flows and lahars, but the outcome of those are still sedimentary rocks, right? Because those are mass flow deposits, and therefore, once they stop and they lithify, sedimentary rocks that are completely made up of, well, mostly made up of volcanogenic sediment. Right. And a a pyroclastic flow expert would probably be angry with 100%. me saying this. <laughs> but I'll say, like, a pyroclastic flow in a broad scale can be thought of as just another density flow. It's just like a turbidite in the ocean. It's like oh, a landslide. 100%. As I told my... Very confused sedimentary class last week. I will say numerous times, air acts as a fluid. All the same physics apply. Yep. And when you put really hot, fine pieces of rock on a steep slope, they form a a density flow just like you would 
with rock underwater and you get a lot of the same features. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the ones that we talked about before are kind of are the airflow or airfall deposits, as they call them. So, yes, air acts as a fluid, but these are falling through the air and being deposited. And then there's all those density flows that you just talked about, the pyroclastic flow, the um, the mud flows, anything like that is also a different type of sedimentary rock. Mm-hmm. And right. then you can get, we didn't talk about, when we talked about pyroclastic flows in Lahars, I don't know if we talked about ignimbrites. I don't think we did. I don't think we did either. And I didn't know that name meant glowing cloud, which is awesome. That is. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely one of those things that was named shortly before the person that named it oh, uh, was yeah. killed. <laughs> yes, exactly. So those ignimbrites come from this Nui Ardente, that's the glowing cloud part, eruptions. And so they are, they're gravity flows, right? Um, and it's tephras and gas. So you're not getting the water content that you would have in a lahar um, or the lava that you would have in a pyroclastic flow. It's just hot, really fast, like gas and yeah, the little pieces that go along with that Dust gas and ash. Yeah, yeah, which is terrifying. So you could get yeah. when this thing slows down, just like you would, like you said earlier, in a turbidite or something like this. You could actually get graded bedding as these come to a stop. So I assume that they're fining upwards. Not finding upwards, there are, well, if you can see any anything like that, it's generally inversely graded just because of those big things and how fast they're moving. So it's more frozen like a debris flow where you've got these big clasts up towards the top. Okay, so yeah, we're not... <clears throat> we're not settling in an ocean. Exactly. Ocean. I, yeah, I think it's the time. I would have said finding upward too, actually. I think it's the time, maybe, that causes this. So it's so instantaneous, you know. My mind is always blown watching people pour concrete and, like, when they start to shake it and have all that yeah. big stuff come to the top. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. Okay, so. Yeah. Volcanic sedimentary rocks. They non-sedimentary sedimentary rocks. They are <laughs> they are out there. Uh, I can't say that I really had much education on them as an undergraduate, though. Um, yeah, I remember. Well, you definitely wouldn't have. Um, our igneous field trip was probably one of the best field trips we went on, just because igneous rocks are really neat. And maybe if you study these, you're not as obsessed with them because we don't have a lot of them here, right? So these non-epiclastic ones. Um, I did learn from the Igneous book that I was reading these things called Aquagene Tuss and Halo Clay Sites. Exciting. So okay. all, <laughs> all that is stuff that um, is happening when you have a volcano in water, essentially, right? There's subaqueous eruptions that are still creating these sedimentary rocks. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 500 words for all the same stuff, but that's what we like to do is categorize these things. But it was really cool for how little that we spend time on these in sedimentary class, because there's so many other said rocks to take care of. Um, I was reading that it said 
you don't see a lot of these because the um the minerals that are involved in this generally break down pretty fast. So yeah, I mean glass is going to turn to what clay basically. Ex- exactly. So they said that you know you don't see glass that's older than like 50 million years really at all because all of that glass turns to clay. And so now um it's when they were formed or in early in earth's history when most of the earth was volcanics it these volcanogenic sediments would have made up like 25% of the sedimentary record okay yeah yeah i could i could believe that yeah. and they're very small percentage now mhm yep it makes yeah it's less than 10 now so so that was a very interesting thing that we don't talk about much and hopefully i can find some examples of these too Keep in lab. I think we have one very precious slide that has these <laughs> like volcanoclastic grains in it. So I probably need to do some more collection. Let me know hmm. when you're ready to go to Hawaii. Oh, tomorrow. Okay, great. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I was trying well, to turn that Hawaii thing into, you know, a segue, but maybe you've got one. Well, I mean, I think my segue would be something about, like, speaking about volcanoes this time for everybody's favorite segment. (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. One ring to multiplex them all. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was my whole point. The papers like that series. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? (laughs) So, I mean, this um, this is a little spiel in nature. This is not the actual research paper, but I wondered if you had, it's from the Victor Torres company. I mean, have I've never you, seen a company on the byline. Isn't that interesting? It is. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, do you use this kind of stuff? I don't know how much optical, um, fiber optic stuff you do. We don't do a lot. I would like very much to get into it. Mm-hmm. It's becoming kind of a hot thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's exceedingly expensive to get into, and you really need somebody that did their PhD on this kind of thing. Ah, okay. So, th- so this one ring to multiplex them all. <laughs> uh, hilarious. It's 2017, so I imagine this is like normal tech now, right? But I do want to say that optical physics also suffers from what we just did for the whole last half an hour, which is instead of just saying combining, you have to say multiplexing. <laughs> Well, multiplexing's a little different. <laughs> okay. I I think <laughs> from an engineering word perspective. Yeah, probably. Um, but I mean, I guess the point of it here is like you have these fiber optic cables. You're sending stuff down them. It'd be great if you could send down different frequencies. Right, but they've came up with this thing where you can just put one laser frequency in, and then you use these little micro resonators that are shaped like rings to output different frequencies. That's what I got from this. Yeah, because okay, so imagine you've got a fiber optic cable, glass mm-hmm. fiber, mm-hmm. and you want to send data down it. I have done the I don't know what what I want to call it here, the trivial solution maybe. Okay. Sounds very like a mathematician would say. <laughs> I've done the trivial solution of I've literally pointed an LED at one yeah. end of a fiber optic cable 
and put a photodiode at the other and sent a stream of data down Ooh. the cable. Okay. Mm-hmm. Worked great. Now, a laser, you're going to get further because you're coherent light. Right. But now, let's say I need to put more data per unit time through that cable. Well, I could use a red LED, and I could use a blue LED, and I could use a green LED. And on the other end, I could have a red, green, and blue sensitive photoreceiver. And now I could send three channels of data through the same one piece of glass. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what happens with the fiber optic cable that runs internet everywhere, except it's hundreds and hundreds of frequencies. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about bandwidths in the terahertz range. Wow. No kidding. Um, but it takes hundreds of laser transmitters that are very expensive. Right. So I can imagine this is why you want to solve this problem. So you make a cavity? (laughs) Yeah, you make a cavity that you put one frequency of light into and you get a bunch of frequencies of light out of. So now you've cut it in half because you only need receptors, not transmitters. Well, I'm not sure. They didn't address this in the paper. Mm -hmm. So I see how you create the light. I don't know how you modulate all of those different lights. Yeah, it said a very carefully constructed, which I imagine means proprietary. (laughs) Yeah, it either means proprietary or patent pending or something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because you know it's not this just little etched on silicon ring or everything would have it. It's not like the figure, you don't think? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the figure is very... (laughs) <laughs> the figure was drawn by the sales department at the Victoria's Company. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's the basic idea is now we can trivially, quote unquote, create many frequencies of light, therefore put a lot of data down a single pipe with one fancy laser pretty cool it is and i'm i'm curious if that's getting implemented now yeah i can't imagine that it is really you don't think i i bet there's probably things that are implementing it coming out yeah but like the national communications infrastructure is old and huge not to the masses yet for sure right Mm -hmm. i bet this is used quite a bit already in industry being as you know this is Six years old now, right? Right. Yeah, seven years old, I guess. Mm-hmm. And hmm. you know, I have used fiber optic sensing uh, in some work that I did at Oak Ridge National Lab, temperature and strain sensing. And that technology has come a long ways since mm-hmm. 2009 when I was doing that. And it's being routinely used. We've talked about it on fun papers before, using yeah. old fiber cables laying in conduits as seismic networks now. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool. That's neat that there's like new things to be done in that. Right. So I think optical is kind of the next. There's been a quest for a while to make optical seismometers. Mm-hmm. And you can do the accelerometers. That's that. That's a done problem. Right. 
what's more interesting is if you can make a rotational seismometer. Mm-hmm. And there are some prototypes, but they're huge and clunky. But if we know anything about technology in 20 years, they won't be. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's an optically pumped magnetometer out now. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, but if you make one of these optical seismometers, which is a ring of fiber optic cable, it's just a lot of it. It's actually two rings wound in opposite directions. Mm, mm-hmm. You shoot the same laser down them. And because if there's rotation, the light's going to get to the end of one sooner than the other. Mm-hmm. You interfere it. And you get the rotational component. And if you have a three-axis displacement instrument or accelerometer and a three-axis rotational instrument, you can effectively replace a seismic, a grid of traditional seismometers with one instrument. Oh, yeah, because you can see, now six it, component instrument. see it from everywhere. Oh, interesting. Yep, I'd hate to dig the hole for that right now. <laughs> yeah, it would be a uh, a Volkswagen-sized hole <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Ten years from now, tiny hole. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if we're lucky, we're the ones that will have figured out how to do it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But in the meantime, if you would like to send your thoughts on the difference between the word combine and multiplex, <laughs> or on uh, how to use micro-resonators in your next project around the house, we'd love to hear that. <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Don't panic geocast at, sh- oh, no, at gmail.com. Listen to me. I haven't committed it to memory yet. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. We are at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our